You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. If you will, wherever you are, let's, let's remain standing and let's pray. Uh, Jesus, God, we're thankful, God, that you, God, that as the song says, God, when everything falls apart, God, you still hold us together. God, we know it's only because of you that we can hope, we can rise, and we can stand. And Lord, we need that in this day, God. We live in a, a culture, God, that is um, steadily becoming hostile towards us and, and towards you, God. But, we, but God, we know that above all, God, you're sovereign, you're planned, God, you're still working it out. There are no, there's nothing that surprises you. And God, you hope to get us through to the end, God. God, you don't say, God, that you will leave us unscathed, God, but you do say that you'll get us to the end, God. And in the end, God, the hope that we've had from the beginning, God, you will manifest in us, God, and you will show us, God, all the things that you've been, you've been showing us through your word, your way, and through our lives, God, that you still reign, you still love us, and you've prepared a place for us. And God, we'll be, and when we go to the sweet by and by, God, that we will be that we will fall in love, we will continuously, God, be in love with you, that we will sing songs to you, God, that we will be able to rest, God, and know, God, that everything that we did was worth it. And God, we pray, God, as we go into this message, God, that we would be encouraged, God, to stand, God, that we would be encouraged to, to understand what's at stake in our world today and to understand that we don't need people, God, who shrink back. We need people who stand up and proclaim your word and proclaim your way boldly, God, even in the midst of opposition. And God, we pray for these things and many more in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. But as you, um, but as you um, be seated, I ask that you would um, please turn to Daniel chapter 1. I'm thankful for the praise team and how they minister to us. Amen. How they lead us before the king. I'm so thankful. Um, once again, that's Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Um, today, we're going to be um, talking about faith in a hostile world. We're going to be talking about faith in a hostile world. Um, as we read, we're going to read starting from chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to go down, um, stopping at verse 7. Um, my, my Lord, uh, I pray that the Lord speaks to you as he has spoken to me this week and that it is an encouragement to your soul and um, a, a clarion call to stand in the midst of opposition. Amen. Um, let's read. Um, once again, that's Daniel chapter 1, starting at verse 1. If you have it, say amen. 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 And here's how it reads. And I'm reading from um, the, um, the New American Standard. So um, follow along as you will in, in your various translations. And it says this. It says, in the, year, in the third year of the reign of Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, or in some translations say the chief of his eunuchs, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths who, in whom there is no defect, were good, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed them 
a daily ration of the king's choice food from the wine, I mean, and from the wine which he drank, and appointed, and appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 7 says, And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Amen. Let's pray um, again. Lord, we thank you for this time, God. Help us to see your word clearly, God. Help us to understand, God, as I, as I um, come forth to deliver this word. God, let it be you who speaks and not me. Let it simply be, God, that, we were, um, that we're called to be encouraged. And God, in the midst of a faithful world, God, we understand that your sovereignty still reigns, you're still in control, and that you, you choose for us, God, to go through this, God, in such a way that would honor you. And we pray for this and many more things in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. As we talk about today, um, this is, if you think about this sermon today, it's going to be kind of a, um, an addendum, um, if you would, to for conscience sake. Um, but if you had to, but if I had to give it the title, once again, it's Faith in a Hostile World. Um, my hope is that as you hear this sermon, you will hear that, you know, in our nation today, there are certain things, there are a lot of things that are changing, many of them not for the better. And as believers, we have to have a right and correct response. But one thing we have to definitely know, we have to understand what's at stake in our culture today. We can't simply sit by and let things just go on as they are. We have to stand as the people of God, and we have to respond in such a way that, that, um, that honors God, that, um, that, that takes his banner and shares it across the world. Amen? And so with that being said, we have to understand that we're going to be caught up in places where we're going to be caught up in rocks and hard places from here on out. Um, whereas in, we used to, we could live our faith, and to some degree you could kind of slide by in certain areas and have certain beliefs that nobody would know. Now you're at the point where there's a dividing line. And there are certain things that, 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 that just automatically spell out that you know God versus things that don't. And so there becomes a divide line. And you have to decide, at this divide line, will you stand or will you fold? And with that being understood, think about this example. Um, the further you go down in the ocean, the more pressurized the, water become, the ocean becomes. The further you go down, the more you will be squashed. If you go down deep enough, the ocean's pressure will flatten you out like a pancake. But the deeper you go, the greater the pressure is. When divers went looking for the Titanic, they, they, they had to make a trip in a small pressurized submarine. It's a little pot-like thing that um, divers sit, I mean, when a diver sits in it, he intends to go deep. If a, diver, if a diver went to investigate the Titanic on the bottom of the ocean without, the pre, I mean, without a submarine, he would be totally destroyed because the pressure of his body is less than the pressure in the water. Even though the water is squeezing against the submarine and trying, to, and, and trying to collapse it, it cannot because the submarine has been pressurized. The diver can go deeper and deeper and yet still remain safe and secure because the pressure inside is greater than the pressure on the outside. Most Christians leave this church every Sunday and go out into a world only to be under a lot of pressure. They're, they're under pressure at work, under pressure at home, in various circumstances, but make no mistake about it, the world is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. 
With the legalization of sin, the blurring of God's standards, the redefinition of God-ordained institutions, and the overall attitude of the idolatry, the Christian is under more pressure to cave in to the standards and demand of the world now more than ever. And as we think about this, we look at the, we look at the book of Daniel. We see that even in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, where it says in the year of the, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Um, we see that from, in, from the very beginning of Daniel, you see people who are now who are now or currently being in captivity. People were captured from Jerusalem, from, from the kingdom of Judah, and they were being taken to Babylon, a godless, a, a godless culture where people did all sorts of things that were ungodly. Um, they were captured, removed from their home, taken to a foreign land in waves. They weren't taken all at once, they were taken in waves, and then introduced to a pagan society with multiple gods. They were under a governmental pressure to conform to the norms of a new society, by, by extreme persuasion or coercion. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar in a day and time? The choice was laid before them was simple. Resolve to follow God or to confirm to the new standard without him. And here's the thing. When we get back to the ocean example, we can tell that we cannot tell the ocean to stop pressurizing us. That's the nature of going into the deep of the world. The deeper you go, the more pressure you're going to get. The world can't help but pressure you, but, the greater, but greater is the pressure that's inside of you than the pressure that is outside of you. God has provided you, Christian, with the Holy Spirit, the very power that's in us, he used to raise Christ from the dead. So greater is the pressure inside of you that helps you to accomplish the will of God than the pressure that is outside of you getting you to conform to new norms and to new society ills. Amen? If you go deep inside, if you go deep on the inside, then you were, I mean, then when you were pressured on the outside, you won't cave in. And so with this being thought of, with, with this thought in mind, think about this. Living a life of faith in an increasingly hostile world is tough, but we must continue to hold steadfast in the midst of worldly persecution. But to hold steadfast, we've got to understand while we are standing. And so with this parallel, as, so if Daniel 1 is our parallel, I want to give you reasons to remain steadfast. Once again, that's reasons to main, remain steadfast. And so the question you want to ask yourself here is what's at stake? Why why, are, why did Brother Jeff challenge you to, pr to protect your conscience? Why am I going to talk about this idea of not giving in, about staying unpressured to the ills of the world? There are many things at stake. And one of the first things we know that is at stake is um, sp our spiritual favor. All right, our spiritual favor. Look at verse 2 in Daniel chapter 1. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them there, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, and the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, as you read, as you read verse 2, you see it clearly says that the Lord gave. All right, you see the Lord gave. A better way, another way to probably paraphrase that is Je Jehoiakim sold the soul of the kingdom. All right. Now, if you don't know who Je Jehoiakim he is, he was appointed king of uh, he was appointed king of Judah by the Egyptians. Now, I know you're asking yourself, why would the king be appointed by the Egyptians to Judah? Right. 
Well, the Egyptians had taken, had captured Judah and taken it under their captivity. And what they did was instead of just simply washing them the way, he said, hey, we will put you a king. But hey, here's a, there's a caveat. You better do what we say or we wipe you out. So he was conforming. So Jehoiakim was conforming to the pressure of the Egyptians. Well, not long after that, after he was put into kingship by um, Pharaoh Necho, who killed his father, Josiah. And keep in mind that Josiah was um, causing a restoration and revival to go on in the kingdom of Judah because after they had, been, after they had abandoned the scriptures, Jeho- I mean, J- Josiah had, was working to return the use of the Holy Script into worship in Judah. And so then fast forward on to Jehoiakim, then all of a sudden that's all gone away because the Egyptians are now taking over. And not only that, Pharaoh Necho, who, who, helped to, who, mean, who helped to make captive the, um, the kingdom of Judah, well, then he eventually gets in the fight with an even bigger army, and that becomes Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon. And so in exchange, he said, so when they take over, so when Babylon comes in and take over the kingdom of Judah, they, I mean, they defeat Egypt, and they say, hey, listen, you can continue to be king, but now you got to do what we say, and you got to pay us taxes, and you got to do what we say, or we wipe you out. And so King Jehoiakim, when you look at how he ruled and reigned, he simply was a vessel of other nations to propagate and do their evil towards us. Is everyone catching that? He was simply a vessel being used by other countries to put ill upon his his own people. And so when you look at Jehoiakim, you see that, um, you see that, however, I mean, although he was taken over, um, he paid tribute to the tre- of the, tre- of the treasury in Jer- and, um, Jerusalem and began to just do all sorts of ill. Now, when you go back and you read a whole bunch of um, rabbinical literature, when they describe who Jehoiakim was, let me just say that it's not what you would want to put as your Facebook profile description, okay? Let me give you a couple of things that he did, okay? Um, Jehoiakim was a godless tyrant who committed atrocious sins and crimes. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Um, he, he is also portrayed as a living, living in incestuous relations with his mother, daughter-in-law, stepmother, and was in the habit of murdering men whose wives he then violated and whose property he seized. So yeah, that doesn't sound like a guy who should be, should be king, now, does it, right? So you have this man who, you have, you, so you have this guy who is, who is the leadership of the nation, I mean, of the kingdom of Judah, but he's clearly immoral, and why am I bringing this up? Because when leadership of any people is immoral, godless, or compromising, the people of the land become vulnerable to various forms of evil. Does everyone follow me? Because of, the immorally, because of the immorality and the godlessness of the king and the influence of the enemies of God, the kingdom of Judah was left susceptible to the hands of those who sought to rule over them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why? Because leadership has no more, because their leadership had no moral compass, no conviction, and no, cor- no courage to stand. You know, our families suffer because people have refused to be the leaders that God has called them to be. Our churches suffer because our leadership and members failed to pass godly truth on to the faithful, um, to faithful men in a dying world. Our nation suffer because our, because our leaders and those who choose them fail to display morality, and we fail to give accountability to those who we allow to represent us. Our country is in quite the predicament when it comes down to who we choose to represent us. 
Just consider our presumptive race for the highest office in the land. You have one candidate who vows to make America great again, yet ascribes to the idea that he doesn't need forgiveness of God to be in right relationship with him. And on another candidate who claims that she's a Christian, says that the Bible is her favorite book, but believes that if your religious conviction does not align with the will of the, of the government, no matter what the stance, then your religious convictions must change. Jehoiakim gave away the kingdom by being an immoral, godless, tyrannical, evil man. And we have to understand that in, in many cases, the real reasons that we have the favor of God is because we choose people who follow God and we ourselves follow God. But what does the Bible have to say about obtaining the favor of God? Everyone, if you would, take a, take a, let's take a break from Daniel. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Is everybody still with me? Good, good. Proverbs chapter 3, and look at verses 33 through 35. Once again, that's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 33 through 35. And here's how it reads. Um, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. The word of God is clear that those who choose to go against his will and way will be cursed. Those who choose not to follow his will will be scorned, will be disgraced. Why? Because they have chosen a different way outside of him. And if you think about, even through biblical history, when you think about the idea that when Saul was chosen to be king, God allowed them to choose Saul even after they, and when they essentially rejected God, they were saying, hey, God, we want somebody that we can see who can lead us. And if you've got to really think about it, hey, God was like, hey, I'm here. I am your king. I promise to be your God. You promise to be my people. No, 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 no. We want somebody we can see. And so then they choose Saul. And if you read the rest of the story, we all know how that turned out. Saul basically kills him, gets killed, right? And eventually God has to intervene and choose a right king for the people, Now, keep in mind that also that the choice of the choosing the wrong, I mean, choosing someone who is wrong also came at a price. Remember, when they chose Saul, God put many stipulations on what would happen if they chose to if they chose a king. And so we have to understand that with our choice and our decisions between those who lead, between those who lead and those who choose who we lead, there is there's a price to be paid. And so we should we, we should want to choose someone who we can, we can effectively continue the favor of God. I, I don't know else how to put that. But we need to be careful about the people we put above us because in some ways we're heaping judgment upon ourselves based on our choices. Is everyone following me on this one? All right. I know it's going, it's going to get quiet as we go on, so let's just keep going. Um, 
Psalm, everyone, if you, when I tell you, what, I'm just going to read this one. You don't have to turn there. But Psalm 84 and 11 says this. It says, for the Lord is the sun and the shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So once again, you see this idea of when we choose to walk righteously, when we choose to stand for righteousness, God protects us. God is our sun and our shield, all right? So we have to understand that we are being called to stand even in the midst of all of the scrutiny, all the things that are going on, because God promises in his sovereignty to take care of us. Now, I'm not saying that the cause may not lead to death. I am not saying that it won't lead to ridicule. I'm not saying that you will not be, you will not be um, disgraced socially, whatever that means, right? I guess that people unfriend you on Facebook, whatever that calls for, right? But anyway, um, but, the, but the reality of it is, for, when you take a stand for Christ, there is a cost. It's a cost. And you have to be willing to call. You have to be willing to take the cost because a faith that can't be tested is not faith. The question becomes, as we move forward toward a nation of more hostile to faith, do we realize that the favor of God is integral to, to our survival? The, thing, the choices that we make, the, our choice to do righteousness or our choice to choose evil is dependent upon the continuing of God's favor. Um, as I listen, I listen to a lot of radio stations and watch and listen to me and um, read a lot of articles lately concerning um, everything in front of political processes. And, one of, and, and then there's come the, there are um, a few different sides that people have been taking. Um, one side, like, of course, there's one side that's like, oh, man, it's as good as it gets to some degree because of certain political um, persuasion. And then for some people, it's, all right, do you want, a gun, you want a gunshot or a knife stab? Which one do you want? Choose one, right? And then some people say, hey, I don't even know if I want to vote, right? But listen, it's something that I'm struggling with, and that's something that you're going to have to struggle with, too. There's an answer. The Lord can help us get there. But we've got to struggle with it. We cannot be necessarily apathetic. We have to take a stand somewhere and do something, okay? Um, but now we have to understand that, listen, if we want the favor of God, we have to continue to walk in the ways of God. We can't, we can't turn our back and simply say, I mean, well, they're going to do stuff and, you know, it's, it's going to happen. Well, stuff may happen, but remember, God put us on earth to be salt and light. And listen, and if we're being salt and light, some of that can restrain evil, right? So our job is not to just say, hey, evil, come on in, step on my carpet, make it muddy. No, 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 put, put your shoes anywhere. No, 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 just throw dirt all over my house. No, we're supposed to restrain evil. Hey, listen, take them, hey, just take those shoes off. You know, we can, have, we can talk, we can sit here, but we can't stand by apathetically and just let things go on. Um, now, another important issue that's at stake for us is not only... Um, not only, I mean, that's um, in stake for the household of faith is um, also our spiritual values. Look at verse three. It says, it says, and the king ordered Ashpenaz, the king of the, of the officials or eunuchs, to bring some of the choice, I mean, some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and some of the nobles, youth in whom had no defect and who were good looking, showing intelligence in every uh, branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, concerning and knowledge, and who had an ability for serving the king's court. And he ordered them to, he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And then in verse five, it says that the king appointed them a daily ration the king's choice foods and of the wine in which he drank and appointed that they should be educated for three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. 
Now, from the beginning, when Daniel and his, friend, and, his, um, and, and his friends are being put into Babylon, immediately something happens to him. Um, although it's not necessarily explicitly spelled out in Scripture, I think it can definitely be implied because Daniel and his friends suffered the indignity of um, castration. And all the church said, ouch. Um, and so there were, and they were turned into eunuchs. Now, here's the thing. In ancient cultures, it was incredibly important for a man to have a family, all right? And they worked, he worked his land, he tended his flocks, but, they also, but it's also served as a financial safety net. In addition, when you think about the sons of a man, I mean, of a, of a Jewish man, they provided him with a legacy, continuing, um, continuing the place of the, I mean, in the place in the annals of God's people. Without sons, the family was allotted a portion of the promised land and would be handed over to others, his name would fade from memory, and he would be as if he never existed. That's why the Old Testament places such an emphasis on ancestry and family lines. It really mattered whom begat whom. Those without offspring were looked upon with pity. So the first thing that Daniel and them experience as they go to, as they go to Babylon is they basically have their legacy, their spiritual value. You know, like, listen, hey, we value family. Well, listen, no more families now, Right. You are strictly servants of us, and you won't be having a family. You will, you will only serve us. And some even consider this to be a curse of God in some cases. Now, add to that the, the fact that powerful kings routinely took the best and the brightest from the conquered lands and brought them home. And then on top of that, the best women were also enrolled into the king's harem, right, or his stable of women, however you want to put that, right? Um, and so... And so then the best men were placed as servants to high-level stewards and slaves. Um, David was one of those people who were the kind of young men who were imported from Jerusalem to serving Nebuchadnezzar's court because he was exactly what they were looking for. Now, although you, as you think about it practically, you think, why would a king go and conquer lands, bring beautiful women, but also bring handsome guys who, who have all this stuff going for them? Well, therein comes the eunuch part. If they got any feelings... They were lost, to say the least, right? And so basically, Nebuchadnezzar, this culture, this godless culture, tried to make less of their spiritual value systems, all right? And so when we look at this, we see that um, one of the practices of warfare was to enslave the captives and convert the people to ensure that there was a dissociation between their literature, I mean, between their culture and their spiritual heritage, one of the biggest things that they're attacking right now is our spiritual heritage. How's it being attacked? I'm glad you asked. Your God is not real. Your God is, your God is actually compromised. You see verses? Some of these verses, they don't, sound like they, they don't sound like they work together. They sound contradictory. Hey, look at your people. Your people are hypocrites. Therefore, your God is hypocrites. Is a hypocrite, right? And plus, your God doesn't fit my box. Because my box wants to do what it wants, and because your God says that I can't participate in this type of sexual activity or I can't have this type of thing going on, you know what? Your God must be false because it doesn't fit my categories. And so you see that the, you see even from the political process to people, everyone is start people are starting to devalue your very value system. We, we see the God as an heir. We see, it, we see it, the God as an heir. We see it as a final authority for our lives. They're saying, hey, at best, that's a supplement. Maybe there's some good wisdom if I agree with it. 
If it makes me look good or if it does what I say, then it's a great thing. But listen, all that other stuff, throw that in the trash because that's just worthless. That's how they see our value system. And just like that, just like Nebuchadnezzar did with with, um, Daniel and the three Hebrew boys, you see that this is happening even now. You see that Babylon was known for its demonic influences. In fact, one of the biggest ways they tried to, if you, if you look at um, verse 5, it says at the very end that they were taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Well, you look and you go, oh, okay, so they're just learning some, you know, learning a new language, you know, just learning some um, social studies. No, it was a lot deeper than that. In fact, let me tell you what the, let me tell you what the language and the literature of the Chaldeans was. Um, they were known for satanic worship, demonic influences, sorcery, um, astrology, right? In fact, it was basically state-sponsored satanic religion. Did you catch that? It was state-sponsored satanic religion. And the core of the curriculum in the schools and higher education was included with a large dose of astrology and occult. In order to prepare for service of the king, Daniel and his three friends were given a a forced full-ride scholarship, right, to, com- to complete a rigorous three-year study program, and did it prepare them to get a vocation in Babylon? No. It consisted of learning the language and the literature, which means that it was designed to certify them as enchanters, magicians, sorcerers, and experts in the dark arts. Hmm, right? And even in the food they were being fed, they were, ser- I mean, they were served, attacked their faith. Um, as, the, as wise men and enchanters in training, Daniel and his buddies were supposed to be fed from the king's table. And it was a diet rich in foods that were expressly forbidden in the law of Moses. And, and here's the thing. How do, what do you do when all you have to eat is all that's in front of you? What do you do? It's not as if they had like a kosher vending machine where they could go and get a Hebrew national hot dog, Right. <laughs> You know, what was there was what was there. And they had to make some and they and they had to make some adjustments. But now they could either take the king's, the, I mean, break God's dietary laws or starve to death. Can you guess where they stood at? You know, did they say, well, I mean, the Lord, I guess he won't mind one pork chop, would he? You know, you know, they didn't say, well, you know, I mean, I know it's bad for me. I know the, I know what the law of Moses says, but, you know. It looks pretty good. I'm pretty hungry, right? They didn't do that. They stood against, right? Now, of course, there's more to the story because Daniel, Daniel shows great resolve in um, turning away the king's meat, but we're not going to get there today, but I just want to make sure everybody understands that. Um, why, would he, why, would, why do you think that this godless pagan nation would do this? They do this, to, they do this to create a generation of subservient people with whole devotion to their ideas and their causes, If you can see the parallel, have you noticed that the world has been trying to silence and reprogram us to make us more like the world? Multiple attempts have been made to soften our stance in certain issues, make us look like hypocrites, discredit us for who we are, have have conviction. And here's the biggest sticking point right now. Having conviction in private, meaning that, hey, as long as you're in this church, believe what you're going to believe. But when you walk out that door, hey, that don't count. Question, what good is a faith when you can only practice it in one place? What good is your faith if the only place you can freely express is in the walls of the church? All right? 
You have a whole world of people that need to be told the gospel of Jesus, that need to hear the truth. And, he, and you know what? Even more than that, they better hope that what I believe in my morality system that I pick up from this, they better hope I use it out in the world because it proves that it proves that I follow God. For instance, when you go to a store, they better thank God that I think to myself, hey, you better not steal anything. Because now if I wasn't, if I wasn't a Christian and if I didn't have that value set, huh, change, listen, it will change my family's life. I'll be trying to get all kind of stuff, all right? <laughs> now don't, hey, now don't, no. Don't be like, oh my God, Reggie said he would be a thief if he, no. <laughs> What I'm saying is if I wasn't ruled by this mindset, if I didn't believe in the word of God to be true, if I didn't believe that this would be the standard of my life, imagine the type of things I can come up with in my mind. Like, how about, hey, I can, change, I can be a girl if I think I am today, even if I don't have any surgery, right? That's what type of thing that happens when you don't have a system of belief, when you don't have a moral compass. You come up with all sorts of um, foolishness. Okay, let's just keep it where it is. It's foolishness, guys. When you don't have a moral compass that is set by the word of God and his standard, you come up with all kinds of stuff that doesn't fit in the box. And then, and rather than accepting seated that it's not in the box, what do you do? You try to make it fit within the box, even though it, doesn't, it will never fit in the box. So you better hope you use your Christian convictions outside of this wall, right, to bring people to Jesus. Because if it's only good in here, nobody gets saved. No one. What hope is there to see on the street when all the Christians only practice sharing the gospel between each other, right? What good is that? We need to preach to a dying world that needs to see an example of what godliness looks like. And yeah, we're not perfect, but man, use what you got. <laughs> and remember that you're being sanctified by, by God's Holy Spirit, that he, hopefully he is shaping and molding and making you into someone who is better than the day before. Hopefully a lifetime better than you were. So you better be using your, your faith, not only in this church, but outside this church to evangelize and reach a dying world. Um, and so with that being said, we, as we look at this, we see that there is a, a stark parallel between what's going on right now in Daniel versus what's happening in our society at, at the moment. And after we forfeit our favor of God, if we forfeit the favor of God and we forfeit our spiritual values, we next begin to lose our Spiritual identity. Once again, let me just repeat those points. First, one, one, what the first thing at stake? Our spiritual favor with God. The second thing that's at stake? Our spiritual values that God has implanted us using his Holy Spirit and his word. The third thing being our spiritual identity. Let's look at verses six and seven. It says that now then, I mean, now among them of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah. And when the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to the Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, and to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Um, on top of all these things, now keep in mind they've been castrated, been made to feed food that's not kosher to their dietary laws. They've been stripped from their home. They've been forced to live in this society under, um, under governmental pressure from persuasion and coercion. And now... On top of that, to make matters worse, um, Babylon, the people of Babylon forced them, well, not forced them, but give them and change their names. Now, when you think about that, you go, well, I mean, change the name? I mean, is that really that bad? Yes, it's that bad. Um, because 
especially in our, in, in, in our Christian culture, in, in, Jewish, in Jewish culture, your name meant something. And you know, you may have heard Brother Jeff mention this in sermons about the importance of your name <coughs> in, the name God, in the name God gives you, right? And Because it, and it, it says a whole lot about who you are, who you're going to be. And so why did they change their name? They changed the young man's name to help erase their attachment from their nation and their religion. Thus, Daniel and his three friends were given Babylonian names. Now, here's the thing. You need to note that each Hebrew name includes a reference to the only true and living God, okay? And their Babylonian name points to a false god worshipped by the Babylonians. But remember, once again, names are important to our spiritual heritage. They are a picture of our purpose and our destiny of the person. And just to kind of give you an example, let me start off with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, his name affectionately means, O God, O God Nebu, observe my firstborn son. So it was a, it was a, it was a, a plea to a pagan God to say, protect my firstborn, right? And of course, it was named by his father in this case, who was um, Belshazzar. Um, but then let's look at the names, but you can see how, these, how that name was effectively taken from his religion and culture. Well, let's look at what Daniel meant. Daniel's name, does anybody know what Daniel's name means? I'm sure somebody do. Anybody? Just off the top of you? Just scream it out. Okay, all right, good. Daniel means God is my refuge. You knew that. Don't act like you didn't know that. Some of you guys knew that. You were just afraid to say that. Um, but it's, it meant God is my judge. But now his new Babylonian name was Belshazzar, which meant Baal protect his life. Um, Baal was a forename of, um, a, a, of a god named Marduk. And essentially the, the elements of Baal or Baal worship were, were not simply just this, this, shrugging, off, this um, shrugging off of Yahweh our God and the enthronement of his own superstition. The chief evil from it that arose from the fact that um, um, the Baal religion was more than just religious fantasies. In fact, they were made symbols of reproductive powers for, I mean, powers of nature, and thus um, their worship ministered to, the, to um, sexual indulgences, all right? So you can imagine this being a god of fertility, right? And their worship just happened to be a lot of different um, sexual indulgences, right? Which at the same time was legalized and encouraged by the king. So he names, so Daniel, whose name means my God is my judge, is now talking about you know, here, God, you protect his life. And obviously that spelled that Daniel has some type of favor among the men because he asked his God to protect Daniel's life, so to speak, right? So that spoke that Daniel had some favor. However, his name was originally God will judge, you know, my God, I mean, God is my judge, right? Well, then you look at Hananiah. His name meant God is gracious, but had his name changed to Shadrach, which meant the command of Aku, and Aku wasn't a Babylonian moon god, right? So he officially changed his name to another, another different type of god they worship. Mishael, who is like God, changed to Meshach, who is like Aku, right? And that was, and Aku once again is the Babylonian um, moon god. And then Azariah, his name meant God has helped, but then his name was changed to Abednego which actually meant the servant of the god Nego. Well, actually it's translated Nabu or Nabo, but some people believe that who, the, the writer of Daniel basically wrote it to kind of say like, 
Yeah, and the servant of uh, some other God, right? Just kind of this, this, shrug, this shrug of like, it doesn't really matter. It was a false God. It doesn't really matter, right? Um, but essentially, but think about this, guys. They went to a foreign land. They had their name changed, which was honoring of their culture, their values, and their religion, and had their name changed to basically further dissociate them from their belief system and everything that they held true. And so naming demonstrates a couple of things. It demonstrated ownership and relationship. By changing the names of the Hebrew captive, Nebuchadnezzar was showing the world that all the gods of the nation, that Marduk, Baal, Nabo, Aku, his gods, were greater and supreme above any other gods. That's why that's such a big deal. When, when Nebuchadnezzar was training these men up, he was training them so, he could, so they could serve him and his God, not so they could serve their own God and go on, just have a different name. They were utterly trying to remove any memory of their former lives from them, the value system that they uphold, the standards that they, that they, rank, that say that they reign true, the worship of God that they valued. Babylonians had so many gods that it was almost impossible to keep up with all their names and their attributes. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah actually describes this, the Babylonians as being insane with their gods. They had so many gods, it just didn't matter, it was just crazy. They just didn't have any standard of how many gods they were going to have. But now here's the thing. To alter the believer's identity is to render them similar to the world, to the rest of the world. But this is not how God has called us to be. He has called us to be separate alien, peculiar, in the world but not of it. And we are to be catalysts for change, not substance for assimilation. It's hard to change people who look like you. It's hard to change people who look like you. Think about that. You know, it's, it's like two crackheads saying, man, you need to quit this crack because it's really killing you, right? And he's like, well, look, at his, look, look who's talking, right? You can't change each other, right? You need somebody outside of you as a catalyst for your change. Now, if they go and talk to Alan to celebrate recovery, then there's a catalyst for change. But them and themselves can only encourage each other and fight over the crack pipe. So, so we have to be sure that, listen, God is, and let me say that one more time just to make sure everybody understands. We are to be catalysts for change, not substance for assimilation. It's hard to change people who look like you. You must become the standard you want others to uphold. You need to see what the product, they need to see what the product looks like as they ponder changing and becoming more like Christ. And so, the, and so, the, and so to get to the conclusion here, um, the question is, as you look at the story thus far, just even breaking into the first seven verses of Daniel, and as you look at the plight that we're in, you gotta ask the question, um, how do we get here? How do we get here? You know, it just seems like a generation ago, things were a little bit better, right? And all of a sudden we look around and it just seems a whole lot worse, doesn't it? Well, I think the answer is actually quite easy. It's sobering, but I think it's easy. You see, as we look at, when we look at Jehoiakim and we look at the nation being given over to Babylon, it's easy to blame the king for his shortcomings and to call him to be a failure of the kingdom of Judah. And can you imagine the things that drove him to be labeled as a godless tyrant among the people? Past behaviors, sin of his own and of those who may have come before him um, long before um, may have come into play. 
You see, the truth is the road to ruin was laid long before King Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim took the reins. Other kings have failed to honor and live for God as they should have. The people of God whom were, who were being led were complicit in the failing of the falling away from God. In short, everyone began to spiritually compromise. Whether for personal gain, selfish piety, ethnic pride, unfounded tradition, um, not rooted in godliness, many were to blame for the captivity of the Israelites. When men begin, to comp- when men begin compromising their convictions, they are lessening the importance of God's standard and essentially telling God that his word and his, I mean, his word is not sufficient. It's like giving God access to the front door of your house, but telling him there are rooms that are security locked and he is not allowed to enter. To quote John Piper, Christ did not die to redeem a bride who would keep him on the porch while, he was, while she watched television in a den. His will is for the church that we would open the door, all the doors of our lives, he wants us to join. He wants you to join at the dining room, spread a meal out for you and eat with you and talk with you. The opposite of lukewarmness is the fervor that you experience when you enjoy a candlelit dinner with Jesus Christ in the innermost room of your heart. And when Jesus is the source of all of when, when, when Jesus Christ, the source of God's creation is dining with you in your heart, then you will all I mean, you will have all the gold, all the garments, all the medicine in the world. The world, and you can stand, I'm sorry, you, can, you guys can stand. This is towards the end. This is really the end here. And again, I come back to the first point. The world is becoming increasingly hostile to your and my Christian faith. How will you respond Will you respond with resolve? And what do I mean by resolve? Will you stand in the midst and determine that there will be certain things that won't happen because it's the standard of God and because it is where you've chosen to stand with God? Or will you compromise? Will you compromise? Many things have been said in the Bible about compromise, but the question remains here, who do you choose to serve this day? Here's the reality. As new laws come to light, and I know you guys are probably, most of you guys are probably familiar with things like what happened Friday. Um, our, our president and Department of Justice sent out letters to public schools telling them to accommodate certain people with bathroom privileges. Things like that are going to continue to happen. The question is, will you just simply accept that or will you stand against it? Because we're living in a time now where you can't simply just say things like, Oh, yeah, you know, God's got us. It's all going to be all right in the sweet by and by. That may be true. That may be true, right? But now, but when, but when history looks back, when the Lord, when you, when, you make it, when you stand before the Lord and when he looks at you, will you be able to say that you stood with resolve and defended his word, his way, and everything that he stood for? Or will you look down in shame and say, no, Lord, I didn't. I compromised. I thought it was the right way to go, but I now realize I should have done more. 
And that's the choice you're all getting ready to make. So, I'm, so I say to you as an, encourage, as, um, as an encouragement, as a charge, um, make sure you know where you stand. There used to be a time where people say bad times are coming or we must prepare for, time, for times to, be, to get worse. It's here. No longer is the time to prepare. Where are you? Where am I? Are you ready? If you're not, that does not mean that God can't begin to equip you and prepare you, but you must act now. And the first act of preparing and being equipped for spiritual warfare is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you do not accept him as Lord, and when we say Lord, we mean someone who has totally, radically changed your life, that you've given over fully to his way, that he has access to every door in your, in your house, especially, and when I say that, I mean in your heart. If he is not affectionately, if he doesn't have the keys, he is not your Lord. Because master Lord means I have control of all, all my decisions. Everything I say, everything I do is led by you. And if a door is locked, he's not Lord. So I urge you, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, I'm asking you right now to accept him. If you, if you want further resolve and you want to pray about it, let's pray together. But listen, understand that you live in a time where you can no longer silently stand back. There will come a time in everybody's life now where whether you're at your job, whether you're at school, whether you're somewhere, the cause of Christ will be stand, stood against and you will have to stand for it. Now, where that would happen, only the, only the Lord knows and only the Holy Spirit can help guide you through it. But make no mistake about it. It's here. It's coming. Don't be lax. Stand firm. Know your position before it happens. You know, know your position before it happens. And I believe that with all, with everything in our heart, that the Lord will honor and continue to give us as a people spiritual favor. He will, he will continuously remind us of our values, and he will continue to affirm our identity so that we can't spiritually compromise. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, God, I thank you, God, for this opportunity to share. Lord, I pray that what I, was, what I share, God, was received in love. God, I know it came from you, but God, I just pray that our hearts and minds are open to knowing and hearing your word in your way. God, we live in a time, God, where hostility towards, our, but towards you, God, more than anything, is the, is the flavor of the day. And God, we know that as Christians, God, there's a little bit of, timid, of, of a timidness in all of us, God, because we think about the consequences. We think about what the, what the results could be of this, God. We think about all the consequences, God. But God, you've also said, God, just as you sovereignly ruled and you took care of Daniel and the, and the three Hebrew boys, God, in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Daniel, God, we know that you're sovereign over all of our lives. We know that you're sovereign above all nations. And God, we know that you know what we need to do and how to inspire us to do it. And so, Lord, I pray, God, as people are, as people are praying, God, I pray that people are making resolve in their heart, God, as I'm trying to continuously make resolve in my heart, God, that no matter what, we will stand for you, Lord, that we will fight for you, God, that we will, that we will love you, that we will teach our children to love, fear, and admonish you, that we would 
pass on the word to faithful men, God, so that the next generation may have it so that they can pass on to faithful men. And God, we want to do this, God, because it honors you, because you told us, God, that this day would come, that we would face persecution, that this, that if we are yours, God, that we would know what it was like to be Jesus. Maybe not in full, God, but you know that we would experience persecution like him. And God, I pray, God, that as everyone on the sound of my voice hears this, God, that we would even right now begin to have a stronger resolve to love you, keep your commandments, and share your gospel towards the world. In Jesus' name, amen.